there's a misconception if you ever get onto the internet that kind of abounds quite a bit. Uh, it's a phenomenon that's called clickbait. If you have no idea what clickbait is, this is what it is, okay? You'll be surfing the web, and as you're browsing, you'll see this article from a newspaper that has an outrageous title. And the reason why it has an outrageous title is because it wants you to click on its link. And if you click on its link and you go to it and you read it, you find out that the article has nothing to do with the title. And what's crazy is, if you're ever on Facebook, these people are posting these articles with these outrageous titles, and they're commenting on it about the title, not what's actually in the article. Another phenomenon that's taken place over the last five to six years uh, is the rise of satirical news sites, uh, places like The Onion or The Babylon Bee. And what's really funny is uh, these, these are fake news, real fake news, okay? They have nothing to do with anything, uh, but they're really funny if you understand what's going on in culture. And what's really funny is when people read these articles, and they're written really well, and people think that it's true, that it actually happened. And so they're commenting, I can't believe that this has taken place. I can't believe nobody is talking about it. And then you have to explain to them, this is satirical. It's not real. It's a misconception. A lot of the misconceptions that come with this is because people just are not paying attention, right? They're not listening. They're not looking. They're not reading between the lines. A lot of times we have misconceptions in our lives. Uh, I had one the other week. Last week I decided to remodel my bathroom and I thought it was going to be easy. I pulled up the floor, pulled up the toilet, and realized I had a bigger problem than I thought I had. You know, and so I had to recall and serve from Sir Backup and say, okay, what do I do next? You know, sometimes we have these misconceptions and we need to be aware of them and know what they are. Sorry. Sorry, my, my, my watch is uh, ringing. All right, now we're on do not disturb. So I always was afraid my cell phone would ring in my, in my pockets, but now it's my watch. So sorry about that. All right, so sometimes we have these misconceptions. And when we look in the book of Mark, we see that the people there had a misconception themselves. And the misconception was over who Jesus was. All right, this question that has been presented throughout the book of Mark, asking who is Jesus? You know, there's a lot of people in Jesus' day who thought they knew, but the reality was they didn't. And so we want to kind of look and see where uh, their misconceptions were. Even the disciples, they kind of uh, were not looking at it in the right manner. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 today, starting in chapter, or verse 27. Uh, we're going to be looking at this uh, question again of who Jesus is. And this is going to be the first time that Mark shows people around Jesus having the answer. All right, so Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 28, we read that Jesus and his disciples went to the villages that surrounded Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? 
And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. And he asked them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Uh, what's very interesting here is that Jesus is traveling to this region known as Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this town uh, was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it was on the base of a mountain called Mount Hermon, and it was very Gentile. All right, there's, there's not very many Jews that lived in this region. And Jesus, he, he says over and over in his ministry that he came to preach first to the Jews. And then he'll send his disciples to preach to the Gentiles. But for the most part, Jesus just deals with the Jewish people. And so it's interesting that he is leaving uh, his region, his country, to go to this region. But it makes more sense when we realize two things. First, the geography of the land. Uh, Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in the region of Palestine. Uh, you can actually stand on the mountain and you can look to the south and you can see the entirety of the uh, Jordan River Valley. Uh, if you've ever been to uh, a tall mountain that kind of is above everything else in its area, you can, you can kind of get a picture of this, right? Uh, every year we went out to Colorado, a number of the times we went up to Pikes Peak. And if you stand on Pikes Peak, you can see for miles upon miles. All right, and so Mount Hermon is just like Pikes Peak in a lot of ways. You can see for miles. And on a really clear day, you can see all the way down the Jordan River Valley and then up to the slope that leads to Jerusalem. And so Jesus, his entire ministry has been focused on the Jewish people. He's going to come to Mount Hermon. And from this point on in the book of Mark, he is going to begin to travel to Jerusalem. And so I think he's bringing his disciples to show them my ministry is about to change. Uh, the second thing we have to recognize is the religious history of this area. Uh, in the Old Testament, the people that worshipped idols, they often worshipped them in what's called high places. Uh, so tall mountains, a, a tall hill in the region. And so Mount Hermon being the tallest in this area would have been a very important place of worship. Then we get to the period of the Greeks where they come in and they see this mountain and inside this mountain there's this cave that has a spring that bubbles up and begins the Jordan River. And when the Greeks saw this, they thought to themselves, this is the place where the God of the earth, Pan, was born. And so they began to worship Pan on this mountain. Herod the Great was given this region to rule by Caesar Augustus. Uh, it was not a part of his original kingdom, but Caesar Augustus, in appreciation for what Herod had done for him, gave this land to him. And, and uh, Herod decided to honor Augustus by dedicating a temple in this region to Caesar. Uh, the name of the town that Herod Philip eventually builds is Caesarea Philippi, Caesar Philip, okay? The town that Philip built for Caesar. And so this whole region is surrounded by pagan worship, and it's in this place that Jesus decides to show his disciples who he was. It's a definitive moment in this ministry of Jesus. 
Because for the first time, he's going to reveal to people who exactly he is. And he begins by getting their brain juices flowing, right? Who do people say that I am? You know, we, we, we hear rumors about ourselves. We kind of know what some people are thinking about us. And I don't think Jesus was completely ignorant of what people thought about him. But he wants to hear it from his disciples, And so his disciples tell him that some think you're John, some think you're Elijah, some think that you're a prophet. And all three of these fall significantly short about who Jesus is. It does show us the respect that they had for John the Baptist. You know, this man has only been dead for maybe a couple of years, and yet they still think that Jesus is this guy. Uh, The Jews didn't necessarily think in reincarnation, so they were thinking about Jesus is ministering in the same vein as these people. Some said Elijah. Elijah was supposed to be this forerunner to the Messiah. So people thought that Jesus might be the forerunner, but Jesus, he's not the Messiah. Maybe a prophet, like the prophets of old. And so the Jews had these misconceptions about Jesus, and they thought they knew who he was, but in reality they had no we still have misconceptions in our world today. Uh, Barna is an organization that does some research uh, about Christianity and what people think about it. And one question that they ask almost every year of people is, who is Jesus? And about two years ago, the results for one of those question polls that they did came out, and it said that 93% of Americans believe that Jesus was real. So that means there's 7% of people that don't think Jesus actually exists. Okay, let's, let's remember that, okay? Of those uh, 100 people, 43% believe that he is God, which means that 57% do not. 57% of people in America don't think that Jesus is God. Of that 57%, 31% believe that Jesus was blessed by God to do good ministry. Uh, 9% thought that he embodied the best of humanity. And 8% uh, said that they weren't quite sure. And when, they, when Barna does this research within the church, the numbers aren't that drastically different. You know, we still don't have in our heads who Jesus is. We have a lot of ideas we think we know, but we're still left with this misconception about Jesus. And so Jesus wants his disciples to understand, and so he switches it in verse 29 from what do people think about me to what do you think? Who do you say that I am? And in verse 30, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. You know, it's one thing to to say what other people are saying about somebody. It's completely different to say what you think about that person, right? And so it's very brave for Peter to stand up and say, this is what I think, Jesus. And he's very quick. And I think think all the disciples are thinking this. Peter is just the one that's quick to answer, sometimes even before he's thinking. And so Peter's speaking for the entire group. You, Jesus, are the Messiah. And the Messiah was this important figure. He was this guy that was going to come in and save the Israelites from the oppression of the Romans. 
This was the one for a couple of generations now the Jews had been looking forward to. And Peter is saying, Jesus, you are that guy. You are the one that my father and my grandfather were waiting for. You're the one that I've been waiting for. You are the Messiah. And interesting, Jesus, Jesus tells them, you can't tell anyone. And we look at that and we think it's kind of weird, but we have to recognize the political implications of what is being said here. Right? There are a couple people in power that probably won't like the fact that Jesus is being called the Messiah. One of them is the Romans. You know, the guys that have the armies, the guys that are causing people to be taxed, the ones that the Israelites are trying to revolt against every once in a while. And so if Jesus goes around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, everyone knows what that means, that you are claiming to be a king. And Rome hasn't given you that power, and so it easily would have resulted in Jesus being arrested. Uh, the second one is the current Herod at the time. Uh, Herod the Great named all his kids Herods. It's really confusing at times. And so whatever King Herod is on the throne probably wouldn't like the fact of another guy claiming to be king. Uh, the religious leaders didn't like Jesus either, and so if he claimed to be Messiah, they probably would do something about it, which they did later on, right? And so there's a lot of reasons why Jesus is telling his disciples, you need to keep it quiet because I'm not ready for a re revolution yet. And so these disciples, they think they understand who Jesus is, but they misunderstand it as well. See, they were looking for a king. They were looking for a guy to start up this new golden age of Israel. But Jesus' Messiahship was different. Jesus tries to explain it in John chapter 18. He's talking to Pilate, the governor of, of Israel at the time. And he says that my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrests. But my kingdom is from another place. And so the disciples, they thought they understood who Jesus was, and they thought they understood what it meant for him to be the Messiah, but they were mistaken. And so Jesus tries to explain it in the book of Mark. Anytime that Jesus asks a question, it's because he's going to teach them something important. And so he asked them, who is the Messiah? Who am I? And now he's going to tell them who the Messiah actually is and what he will do. In verse 31, we read that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must be suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. See, Jesus declares exactly what is going to take place. This is the first of three times that Jesus talks about what the Messiah would go through. He says the Messiah would suffer. And when we look at the ministry of Jesus and later on in his life when he's arrested and brought before a trial of the priests, we see that he's beaten by them. And we see that he's taken to the Roman officials, and there he is also given a beating, but this time the 39 lashings. And they would take this whip with leather cords, and they would tie pieces of glass and pottery and nails, and they would use this to beat the back of the bare-chested man. And the whippers would be so good that they would flick their wrists at the right time to cause pieces of flesh to fly off. 
the Messiah would suffer. And he says the Messiah would be rejected by the religious leaders, the scribes, the, the uh, elders, and the chief priests. And this is probably a reference to a group called the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jewish religion. These guys that should have known because they knew their Old Testament like the back of their hands, the guys that should have looked at Jesus and said, yes, this is the Messiah. They are the ones that will reject him. And eventually, the Messiah would die. He'd be led up onto a hill and nailed to a cross and suffer for a number of hours before finally giving up his life. And Jesus tells his disciples this, and they do not like what they are hearing. Because in their mind, the victory of the Messiah is leading an army into Israel, into Jerusalem, and recapturing the city. But Jesus says the ultimate victory of the Messiah is not in an army, but in his death. And so Peter, again, probably speaking for the group, everyone's thinking it, he's just the one that speaks it decides to take Jesus aside in verse 32, and he begins to uh, rebuke Jesus. But Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. At the beginning of there, verse 32, Jesus, we're told that Jesus speaks plainly. This is important in the book of Mark because Mark has told us that when Jesus spoke to the peoples, he spoke in parables so that only those who had understanding could understand. But here Jesus is speaking plainly. They understand exactly what Jesus is saying. They understand that Jesus is saying he is going to die. And Peter takes Jesus aside and says, you know what? This is not right, Jesus. You are the Messiah, and I know what the Messiah is going to do because I've been taught it my entire life. He won't die. He'll be in victory. He won't be rejected by the most important people in our religion. He won't be suffering. You are wrong, Jesus. Knock off the crazy talk. And Jesus, knowing that the other disciples are thinking, it turns to them as he speaks to Peter. And he tells Peter, you get behind me. See, Peter had taken it upon himself to be the leader for this moment. He took it upon himself to teach Jesus what really was going to happen. And Peter forgot his place, that he was not the leader. He was a disciple. And Jesus reminds him, you get behind me or you're not with me. And they're left with this choice. Are they willing to follow a Messiah that would suffer? Are they willing to follow a Messiah who would be rejected by men? Are they willing to follow a Messiah that would die? See, Jesus is presented with this same choice, I think. I mean, let's think about this for just a second. Peter is telling him what everybody says the Messiah is doing, and it's different than the Messiah that God has. And I think the reason why Jesus calls Peter sane is because Peter in this moment is tempting Jesus. If left to our own choice, which would we choose? To be a king 
to reign on a throne, to lead masses of people into freedom, or to die and suffer and be beaten and be nailed to a cross. If we had a choice, which would we choose? And I think as, Jesus, as Peter is rebuking Jesus, Jesus is faced with this temptation. Which plan am I going to go with? God's plan or this plan that's being presented? A lot of us, I think, would choose to live. And yet Jesus says, no, I'm going to do what God has in store. And we have a question, just like the disciples, are we going to get behind Jesus or are we going to go off in our own way? Uh, there's a children's game, right, called Follow the Leader. And in this game, the leader does whatever they want to do. They can skip, they can run backwards, they can do whatever, do somersaults, and everybody that's following the leader is expected to do the exact same thing. And there's no difference between that game and following Jesus. Are we willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads us? Even if it means that he suffers and we suffer. Jesus will approach the crowds now. He turns away from his disciples and he looks at the crowds in verses 34 and the rest of the chapter, uh, verse 34, after turning to the crowds, he says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And here Jesus is opening the invitation not just to the 12 that are currently his disciples, but to everyone. If you want to be my disciple, here's what you do. You deny yourself. You know, a lot of times in our lives, we, we make life about us, about what I like. I like this music. I like the way we do it this way. I like this. And we forget that Christianity isn't about us. Following Jesus is not about us. It's about denying ourselves. Because when we're so focused on ourselves, we forget about a whole lost world of people. And what can we do to reach them? And so if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to follow Him, if you want to get behind Him, it begins by denying yourself, by saying, I am not that important, because in reality, who am I? I'm a guy in Mexico, Missouri. When I speak, who listens? Not a lot of people. When I speak by myself, Congress doesn't stop and change the laws of the land. When I speak, only a handful of people might actually pay attention to what I'm saying. Who am I in the grand scheme of things? I am nothing, so why would I think more highly of myself than I am? And so if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to remember that you're not actually that important. And that there's more people in this world that need to know Jesus. And so it might mean that you deny 
your own rights and what you want so that they may know how to come to Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up my cross. And a lot of times when we hear that, we think about the cross of Christ, the most important cross in all of history. But up to this point, Jesus hasn't talked about a cross. You know, he says he's going to die, but he doesn't say how. And so the first century readers, as they're reading this book and as they're hearing Jesus say these words, they're not thinking about Jesus dying on a cross. They're thinking about what that cross meant. The Romans, when you were sentenced to death, would take you and they would make you carry the beam that you would eventually be nailed to. It was your final punishing, humiliating act before you died. And the, disciple, and the, this, the crowd here, as they're listening to Jesus, they would understand that what Jesus is saying, you have to be willing to be so committed to me that you're going to carry a cross where there is no hope of life. There is no hope of rescue. Are you willing to follow me to death? And even a torturous death at that. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to follow me. You cannot be the leader. You cannot do what you want to do. You have to follow where I send you. Are you willing to make those decisions? To make those commitments? Because it's hard to follow Jesus. When Jesus says, love your enemies, that is hard. And we all know that. We all know people that have hurt us in our past, and we hate them. But Jesus calls us to love them. It's hard to follow Jesus as He's suffering and we suffer. It's hard to follow Jesus when we are taking up a cross and dying for Him. It is difficult. But if we want to be a disciple of Jesus, we have to make that commitment. Uh, Jesus addresses one other thing in the remaining of this passage. Verse 35, he says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will, will for the gospel save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to his Father's glory with the holy angels. This last thing that Jesus says, if, if you want to be my disciple, you have to change your value and what you value most. Uh, Mark probably writes this uh, to the Romans and they are enduring the persecutions of Nero. And so as they're reading this in Rome for the very first time, they're like, man, this is what we absolutely need. Because we get that same choice that Jesus was tempted with earlier. We get to choose, do we want life now or do we want life later? And Christians, they were being brought to trial and they were being asked, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And they are given that choice. Are you going to accept it? And if they accept it, admit death to them. So which did they value more? Life on earth or life in heaven? 
And that's a tough choice because we don't want to die, most of us. But which do we value? Which is more important? And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to get to behind Him and follow wherever He leads, it means you must value life in heaven more than you value your life here on earth. And that's difficult. Which are we going to choose? Following the Messiah requires everything from us. Jesus is the Messiah. And we're really left with that question. Do we truly believe that? Do we believe who Jesus is? That He is the Messiah? And if He is, are we willing to do everything to follow Him? It's a choice we have to make, and at some point in time we're going to be presented with that question. Are we willing to give up everything? To deny ourselves? To be willing to die for Him? To follow Him wherever He leads us and wherever He takes us, even if it means that we suffer? And are we willing to value life in heaven more than life on this world? For me, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. And He's worth everything that I could ever give Him. What's your choice? Who is Jesus? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, these are difficult questions. And they're difficult choices that we have to make. And Father, I just pray for us now that we can recognize who you are. That you are the Messiah of God. That you came not to lead victory over these earthly kingdoms, but to lead victory over death and sin. Help us, Father, to make the commitment to follow you, not to take the lead ourselves, but to get behind you and go where you go. Jesus, you are worth everything, and I pray that we can give you everything. In your name we pray. Amen.